Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, we're talking about the original Dungeons & Dragons setting. The one that's been published over and over again across editions. The one written by Gary Gygax himself, with a variety of other people's help, of course. Greyhawk! Woo! I know nothing about it, though you have assured me otherwise. Yeah, you know more than you think about it. In fact, you will recognize many things in here that you probably didn't think were from Greyhawk. It's not the most iconic setting of Dungeons & Dragons, but it is a very foundational one. And because of that, there's a lot to talk about, especially in the history of how it became a Dungeons & Dragons setting and the process of it getting published and it becoming something that everyone was familiar with. But before we really get into Greyhawk, we have a segment that we like to call the Week in Hobby. I'll go first. Mine was pretty simple. I just ran two D&D campaigns this week. Both of my Eberron groups, the first of which was reaching the climactic scene of their assisting the heir to the Duke and him reclaiming reclaiming his rightful position. So they brought the evidence that they had acquired from the robbery of the Duke's manor. Burglary, I guess, technically. Because they assaulted one of the guards, it would qualify as robbery since robbery involves... Uh, the threat or use of violence. Yes, they did make attacks. There was initiative rolled in that, so it was definitely a robbery then. Yes. It was supposed to be a burglary, but they uh, missed that stealth check. Tisk tisk. So after their robbery, they brought the evidence to the king, who was like, oh, this is a very serious accusation. The duke demanded trial by combat. And so they had an arena fight. Yay, finally. Yes, uh, I had set that up for them a while ago that that was going to be an option, so they got to play it out. We got to see more of the combat from the new character, who's going to be interesting because he's a forge cleric and is almost a pacifist. So he really focuses on tanking damage and buff spells, which is an interesting setup and a cool way to roleplay your character. It was a little awkward in that the party's paladin was missing for the session. Presumably he had been called off by the church to go handle something instead. Church business calls. Be back soon. Which meant that they didn't have another like frontline damage dealer type character. And instead had two ranged medium squishy types. A warlock and an artificer. So yeah, the, the having the cleric hold the front line when he's not able to make attacks didn't work quite as well as they were hoping. They still won. Although that had more to do with one of the individuals in the opponent's side being very interested in the dragon mark that the warlock had and the fact that the warlock was an elf and the fact that he was casting necromancy spells despite not getting those as a warlock. Quit squirming and let me look at you. And what that all means. Um, and then he kind of 
through the fight. He pretended to get knocked down by the warlock. Oh no, I am slain. Yeah, actually, he he used that line. <laughs> I had him roll a performance check, and he flubbed it pretty bad. I'm trying to think of any any other really bad performances that I've seen lately. I just always think of professional soccer when you see the guy, and he just he gets you know very slightly tapped and just loses his mind. Yeah, that's that's basically what happened with him. And then, of course, they. Defeated the Duke, he got imprisoned, the king ordered an investigation, the kid's going to become the new Duke, and the party is going to be rewarded, and they leveled up. Yay! Which I would say is overdue, but it's based entirely on how, on them accomplishing things, so the fact that they've gotten sidetracked or, you know, done random sort of inconsequential actions... Are, is that, are they doing a uh, milestone or like some kind of hybrid of milestone and XP? Entirely milestone. Okay. I run a sort of milestone system. I saw this mentioned online somewhere and I was like, ooh, that's good. I should use that. Where essentially you need to complete a number of objectives equal to your proficiency bonus in order to level up. Interesting way to do it. Yeah, and those have to be, like, actual objectives and not side tangential things. Mm -hmm. Because the goal is that you're leveling up when your characters are making progress in the story. Makes sense. In this case, the three objectives that they completed were rescuing slaves, getting the evidence, and making the kid duke again. So after they knocked out those three things, which took them... Like, five or six sessions, almost. They got to level up. Uh, I'm not a professional DM, but... I don't know. Five sounds like maybe a good spot to level up. Yeah, I think it was five. If they had really focused in on those things, they could have gotten that done a little faster. But also, you know, it it provides a pretty good speed of how things go. Now, my other group had already leveled up because they blow straight through things. They met up with the information broker that they had contacted last time, defended him from a group of gnolls that were after him for, uh, well, giving away secrets. Defeated the gnolls, got to, an uh, got to ask some questions of the information broker, which he provided a whole bunch of exposition from... And then in order to get a couple more questions, they accepted a job from him where they went to a village a couple days journey away and um, to find out why his courier hadn't shown up and found that the village was currently occupied by a treant and a number of druids. Fun. Yeah, the treant had magically put everyone in the village to sleep with some form of strange pollen and was causing vines to grow over all the houses, and the druids were trying to get him to go back to the forest. Go back to where you came. Return to the woods. The druids were, like, on his side. They were, like, trying to escort him back nicely. There was also a dryad there. But, yeah, the party had to basically convince him through a combination of persuasion and playing music. 
trying to play some music to keep him entertained and get him to talk him into leaving the town. <laughs> Which they did. They could have approached that in a number of ways, but I left it open-ended, so they talked him into leaving. And then they got more questions, of which they used one of the two and left the last one for a party member who was unable to make the session, but his character was presumably standing in the background the whole time, so he would have asked a question. Because they all agree he would have just blurted something out. <laughs> so he'll get to do that when that uh, when we have a next session. Exciting times. Yeah. I've got big plans for where they're going next, now that they have a bunch more information. How about you? What have you done this weekend, Hobby? I spent most of the week screaming into the void and trying to decide which chaos cult I should join for the end times. Uh, but after that, did some more work on my Lannisters for Game of Thrones. Uh, the first unit's almost done, and the technique that I made that I used is working pretty well, where I essentially used a rattle can spray paint for the red base coat, and then eventually went over it with another slightly brighter shade of red, and it meant that I really only had to do one coat of the red paint, didn't deal with like trying to cover up primer or anything like that, so that worked pretty well. Uh, got a set of uh, House Clegane warriors that are going to be up next. They're probably going to be a more traditional paint setup because they don't really have any coats of arms or anything. It's basically just armor and fur, so they'll probably just get primed gray with some Zenithal highlighting and then just go to town with silver paint. Um, but that's really all I've worked on lately. Yeah, I think the Chaos Cult I would join for the End Times is probably Siege. At least that's my plan. I'm not clever enough for Siege, so I'm probably going to go with Slanesh, because Slanesh is a fellow NB, so have to represent. And I've been listening to Death Metal for most of the week, and uh, Slanesh is the only one who has a unit dedicated to going into combat playing loud music. Yeah, but death metal could also be corn. Possibly, I think corn would just be atonal shrieking. This is this is quite possible, yes. Or I guess maybe, maybe it just kind of depends on the kind of metal. Yeah, a, a thrash metal is probably pretty corn. Yeah, you'd have to get like Slayer and maybe some like really experimental metal that uses a lot of. Uh, atonal distortion and all that, that would probably be fairly corn, but I'm pretty sure just the shrieks of berserking warriors is uh, all they consider as music. Yes. Siege, on the other hand, listens to all music, but the playlist is set to random. <laughs> so you vary from having like a polka to EDM to the Beatles to, I don't know, something even more bizarre. I like it. Nurgle. I don't know what kind of music Nurgle listens to. Mumblecore rap. Yeah, that'll do it. I, I, I'm not a Nurgle fan. I don't know. I I want to do a Nurgle army at some point, 
but I just really haven't gotten around to it. I was going to do Plague Marines at some point for the uh, previous edition of Kill Team. I'm still trying to figure out where I stand with the new edition of Kill Team. It's got a lot of stuff that I like and a lot of stuff that I don't like, but G-Dubs isn't going to break down my door and confiscate my old Kill Team book, so I can I can do whatever I want. It's my game. Are you sure they're not going to break down your door? Because I think I see the Inquisition rolling up to mine. No, I I didn't expect the Inquisition, not the G-Dubs Inquisition. Yes, Surprise is one of their top weapons. Surprise and overpriced plastic miniatures. Oh no. But with the weekend hobby out of the way, let's talk about Greyhawk. Caw! That's the best bird that I can do. Yeah, that, that's a that's a hawk. Presumably some gray in there. So, Greyhawk was one of the original D&D settings alongside Blackmoor, which is maybe a future episode, but maybe not because it never got a published setting officially. Greyhawk as a setting was developed by Gary Gygax in the early 1970s and served as the official setting for early editions of Dungeons and & Dragons and as the official setting for the games that he was running at home. It started out not as a fully developed world, but rather just a place to run adventures. It was Castle Greyhawk and the dungeon beneath it. The world of Greyhawk is known as Orth and has many striking geographical similarities to the real world as Gygax originally didn't want to have to draw a massive fantasy map and just used one of the Great Lakes region of the U.S. with the city of Greyhawk located in the vicinity of Chicago. <laughs> Greyhawk developed alongside the first edition of Dungeons and & Dragons, and many of the early adventurers and player characters from it would make their way into the published game. Wizards such as Mordenkainen, Tensor, Bigby, Melf, and Otto all contributed their names to classic spells. All I know of Melf is his acid arrow. Yeah, there's Melf's acid arrow, Bigby's hand, Otto's irresistible dance, Tensor's floating disc... All of these are things that you'll see in every edition of the Dungeons & Dragons since that original one. Adventures such as Tomb of Horrors, Against the Giants, and White Plume Mountain were all originally set in the world of Greyhawk. Vecna is from Greyhawk. Vecna! Most of these adventures have been modernized if you feel like traumatizing your players a bit. Someday I want to attempt uh, Tomb of Horrors... Maybe we'll get around to it. I've run it. It's kind of annoying. It It's not well balanced for a modern campaign and modern player expectations, so... The 1975 Greyhawk supplement was basically the first ever Dungeons & Dragons splat book. Despite the name, however, it didn't have a lot of setting details, just new classes, spells, and additional rules to improve playing Dungeons & Dragons. Spill in the gaps yourself. Yeah, Gygax originally thought that every Dungeon Master would want to create their own world to play in, and was surprised when fans expressed an interest in getting enough information about the setting that he had created and was running games in, that so that they could use it themselves. Which, of course, led to 1980, when TSR released the first setting book for Dungeons & Dragons. 
the world of Greyhawk. It described the setting in pretty great detail. It was 60-some pages with a history that included a long list of fallen kingdoms and lost empires, a better map that looked a little less like the northeastern United States, and uh, a bunch of kingdoms with different political and racial makeups so that dungeon masters would have a huge amount of variety in where they wanted to set their stories. They could do it in the like main countries, they could do it in the Empire of Illus, they could do it in the Dust Sea or the Black Ice Plains, you know, they had a whole bunch of places to go. A number of additional adventures were published for the setting, the most famous ones probably being Expedition to the Barrier Peaks and the Temple of Elemental Evil. A boxed Greyhawk set was published in 1983, which basically doubled the size of the book, uh, talking about a lot more details and more NPCs and monsters and stuff, and more information about the deities and planes related to the setting. Greyhawk setting books and information continued to be published during the change to second edition, although it was less popular than the Dragonlance setting, which came out in 1984, and we will do an episode on, and partially because Dragonlance had a whole series of fantasy novels set in it, like right away, which drew a lot of attention to it. And then the Forgotten Realms setting, which came out in 1987, and similarly had a lot of fantasy novels set in it. In third edition, Greyhawk was considered the base setting for the game. The deities of the setting were included in the player's handbook, Paylor, St. Cuthbert, uh, Vecna, etc., but despite this, there were only a handful of published Greyhawk sourcebooks for 3rd edition, mainly the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer. Gazetteer? Gazetteer? Whatever. Living Greyhawk. It was a book about Greyhawk. It, you know, updated some stuff for 3rd edition, talked about it. In 4th edition, Greyhawk was removed as the main setting. 4th edition had no published sourcebooks for Greyhawk. 5th edition doesn't have a specific sourcebook published, but it has referenced it quite heavily. Four out of the seven adventures included in the Tales from the Yawning Portal book are updated versions of classic adventures that were set in Greyhawk. That's Tomb of Horrors, White Plume Mountain, Against the Giants, and Lost Shrine of Tamoshan, which is like a Incan, Mayan, Aztec-inspired thing. And then the book Ghosts of Saltmarsh is entirely updated versions of classic adventures that are set in the Saltmarsh area of Greyhawk. And although that book does include information for dungeon masters who want to run it in your own setting or in a different setting. So now that we've got kind of the history of the setting out of the way, what does the actual setting look like? What's the world of Greyhawk? I'm assuming gray and filled with birds. Mm, you are wrong. The planet of Greyhawk is known as Orth, which is, it, it just say Earth with like a Brooklyn accent? Oif. Orth. <laughs> yeah, that that's the joke. Go, socks. You'll notice that the, that Greyhawk being one of the earliest settings has a lot of names that are low effort by modern standards. 
the eastern end of one of the continents is a region known as Flaneus, which is where Greyhawk, the castle Greyhawk is located and is kind of the focus of the setting. The region has more than 60 city-states, providing enough variety for just about anyone. A few of the major ones include the Grand Duchy of Jeff, <laughs> Blackmoor, and the Empire of Uls. The center of the setting, home base to many classic adventurers, is the free city of Greyhawk. Originally, it was a trade city, and then it was uh, ruled for a time by the Archmage Zagig, who, as Lord Mayor, made it the most prosperous place in the world and started building that, started building Castle Greyhawk and an immense dungeon beneath it, and then kind of went insane and turned that dungeon into a massive, massive ruin full of all sorts of things and kind of became a demigod and imprisoned nine deities below the castle. And um, the city almost fell into ruin and then kind of got revitalized when adventurers showed up and started plundering into that dungeon and finding that, holy shit, it's full of all this great magical artifacts and treasure and such. Also, it's worth noting... If you spell the name of Archmage Zagig backwards, it's 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 Gygax. <laughs> Clever. Yes, that like I said, that's the naming conventions for the world. It's if the naming conventions for stuff comes a lot from early Dungeons and Dragons when a lot of it was pretty low effort. It was whatever people could come up on the with on the spot, and it's kind of stuck. Another kind of important thing in Greyhawk is the Circle of Eight. It was originally basically what Gygax did with the players, or with the characters that he was playing in the game, once they became too powerful to really run sessions for, is they all teamed up and formed a big organization. This was eventually rewritten when other people started working on the setting and trying to turn it into something publishable. It's a group of incredibly powerful mages brought together by Mordenkainen to watch over and protect the world from their obsidian citadel. Each of the mages has a different alignment. Mordenkainen is true neutral, and then the other eight of them fall into one of the, you know, other eight alignments in Dungeons and Dragons. So there's one that's lawful good, one that's chaotic evil, one that's true, one that's uh, chaotic neutral, one that's lawful neutral, so on and so forth. And any of them could be, like, the backer of a player or a party in the game. So that's the basics of Greyhawk. It has a lot of details if you go back and find one of the old books. If you don't care so much about the rules, which it's a setting book, why would you? And just look at the information about the various kingdoms and local places, then... It's a really good resource for as for a setting. That being said, it's very dated. And I think one of the strengths of it is also probably its biggest downfall, and that's the variety. Because it was such an early D&D setting, it needed to include everything that was being created for the game at the time. Which means that Greyhawk is something of a kitchen sink setting with very little in the way of an overarching plot or through line or, like, thematic consistency. 
Historically, most of the major conflicts that have been used as part of official campaigns have been classic good versus evil, with liches, evil demigods, emperors trying to conquer, or like an evil vizier who overthrows a prince or something. And then the complicated, the more complicated stuff has been Mordenkainen and his attempts to balance the forces of good, evil, chaos, and law, initially in the setting, but then in later editions out into the wider cosmos, which is what he's doing in 5th edition. Is a secret, secret Modron. No, because Modrons are lawful. Mordenkainen's big thing, and we could perhaps talk about this in a later episode, or maybe if we just do an episode talking about the big, important, reoccurring characters of D&D, Mordenkainen is true neutral and seeks to maintain the balance so that none of the various alignments get too powerful. It's kind of a... He's kind of a weird character in that he does this in interesting ways occasionally, but also it's about the weakest philosophical argument you can make. He's a centrist. Get him. He is quite literally a centrist in terms of the, like, nine-square grid of D&D alignment. Also, I suppose he's a centrist in that, you know, the evil guys are like, we should enslave people. And the good guys are like, you should not enslave people. And Mordenkainen's thing is, okay, just a little bit of enslavement then. Just a little bit of slavery. Yeah, that that's sort of where he lands. Now, I could go into more detail about the various elements of the setting, but there's a lot of different kingdoms. There's a lot of different geographical locations and none of them are particularly unique or interesting like i said it's a kitchen sink setting so it's got a lot of very standard fantasy tropes and standard fantasy kingdoms evil empires good like baronies and princes and stuff it it just fits in as the baseline so Instead of that, I think we should talk about, like, Ed, now that you've heard this, do you perhaps recognize a little more about Greyhawk? A few of the characters I recognize, uh, and some of those adventures, like Tomb of Horrors. That's about it, still. I was thinking you might recognize some of the other ones, but yeah. It, it's very foundational to Dungeons and Dragons, and that means that it's not perhaps as interesting as you would expect, because w- most of the things in it are the base level things. They're things that you already have come to expect, because all the stuff that comes after them is built on them. It's the default. For a long time, it was the default setting, and because of that, it's very generic, seemingly, except for the, like, weirdly named stuff the grand duchy of jeff being a great example or um there's some others yeah and as far as i know we haven't done anything set in greyhawk to my knowledge nothing recent for sure yeah it's it's a interesting generic setting if you want to use a generic setting and it's got a lot of older material that you can draw from if you're trying to run a campaign and you want to use it as a setting 
So I guess the question is, should they publish a new official setting book for it for fifth edition? Um, maybe. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even really do one for Forgotten Realms. I think just because it's Forgotten Realms after 3.5 kind of seemed like the default setting. And that's what it looks like people are most familiar with. Forgotten Realms was the default setting for 4th edition. It also got the most books published for it in 3.5, despite Greyhawk technically being the, like, default setting for that edition. I mean, if there's some way that they can differentiate Greyhawk from Forgotten Realms in any meaningful way, maybe they could do one. Because if you've got, you know, Forgotten Realms, which is as of 3.5 and 4th edition, kind of your base level D&D. And then you've got other settings that do like interesting twists. Like you, you know, you have your 5th edition, uh, what you call it, Eberron. I don't know why I'm blanking on everything else. Exandria. It feels like because it's, it feels like because it's so standard, it would be very difficult to differentiate it from, Forgotten Realms, I don't know if there's a way that they could do kind of like a dual publication of like Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk. Forgotten Realms did get the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide as a setting book. Maybe something similar to that for Greyhawk. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd like to see a new setting book for Greyhawk, especially because that would give them the opportunity to go in and maybe clean up a little and determine what parts of it they really think are interesting and shine more of a light on those aspects. That or even just expand on it. I think there's so much that already exists that expanding on it would be weaker than picking the best parts of the existing material and like polishing those up. Because if you're going to expand on it, why not just do a whole new setting? based entirely on the expanded stuff. Yeah, because for me, like, the only stuff that really sticks out in my brain when I think of Greyhawk are a couple of the adventures, and that's about it. Nothing else has really left any kind of imprint. So I don't know if... I don't know if it's even worth trying to update the setting just for those specifically, or just say, you know what, here's a Castle Greyhawk adventure just forget that Greyhawk is in reference to any geographical area. That's just now the name of the castle and you're doing it in the Forgotten Realms or on Eberron or something like that. That's essentially what they did with the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book. While it's technically set in the like Saltmarsh area of the Greyhawk universe, it has stuff in there to be like, if you want, you can just place this roughly here geographically in Faerun or Eberron or wherever. At the same time, the book does reference organizations and people and like kingdoms and stuff from Greyhawk. Because, you know, it's based on adventures from the Greyhawk universe. So I think it would be interesting to do a Greyhawk setting book. I mean, they've done plenty of others. So going back to the source material and talking about some things like Greyhawk and the dungeon. Um, It would also be interesting if in it, if like half of it was 
setting of the world, and the other half was just about the dungeon under Castle Greyhawk, because the original dungeon, as written by Gygax and the people he worked with, was something like 60 floors. Jesus. And included, you know, huge amounts of detail and puzzles and all the crazy shenanigans that they were up to. So even a somewhat truncated version of that would be one of those super detailed dungeon crawls that some people really like. Just turn it into a pocket dimension for uh, 5th edition. I mean, that's what they did with the Ravenloft setting, and people were not real happy about that. Lame. Um, we'll get When we get to Ravenloft, we'll talk about that. Because that's definitely going to be another one of these episodes. I think conceptually it sort of works, but the 5th edition setting book was not great. And then it didn't have a lot of... It, it missed a lot of the detail that people were looking for. So yeah, if you're going to publish a new book, I think you do it by you do half of it as heavy on the setting and talking about where what the various kingdoms are and the relationships between them and the interesting places in them. And then the other half, you delve into incredible detail about the dungeons of Castle Greyhawk and give players a reason to go back to a classic dungeon crawl and revisit it in modern editions. If it's 60 floors, does that make it like an anti-skyscraper? I mean, remember, it was created by the mad archmage Zagig. So, yeah. Isn't every dungeon an anti-skyscraper? I, I wouldn't think so, because most of them don't go down that far. That's Greyhawk. Uh, perhaps not as detailed as it could have been, but... I never played a full campaign in Greyhawk. I've played a few of those adventures that we've talked about and read through a number of them. So the setting it doesn't hold the same nostalgia for me as it might for other people. I certainly think it's an important setting to at least know about because it's where a lot of concepts and a lot of the background for Dungeons & Dragons came from. But the lack of a, like, core thematic element makes it a little weaker than some of the more modern settings that changed it from just being pure fantasy and sort of designed themselves around the concept of doing something interesting with your setting. Whereas this was the baseline. Sounds like maybe they'll need to come up with a new thematic element to uh, retcon into Greyhawk if they want to bring it back. Well, you could push up that... Uh, uh, the Circle of Eight. Push them and make them, like, be more powerful behind-the-scenes masters of, like, setting countries at war against each other and stuff. Make the Circle of Eight be the, like, powerhouses that you're working for. Plot twist. The Circle of Eight are the... They are the universe. If any of them... That's the Circle of Life. But yeah, that's essentially Greyhawk. I think it's important to know about. I don't think you should all go out and buy copies of the books because they're very old or they're not from the current edition. And so it's harder to find. 
But it's the first D&D setting, so there's lessons that you can learn from it. There was a reprint of Return to Temple of Elemental Evil, but it was 100 bucks, and I'm like, uh, that's too much for me. Yeah, if you want to get some of the classic adventures from it, the Tales from the Yawning Portal has modernized four of the big ones for 5th edition, and you can send your players to uh, White Plume Mountain against the Giants, the Shrine of Tamashan, and the Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors will probably traumatize some of them, so keep that in mind. It is deliberately difficult. Yep. On this podcast, we have a segment called Board Game Corner. Yay. I think you said you had a board game, Ed. Yep, I was waiting. I was waiting for you to uh, talk me in. Okay, and today, Ed is going to be presenting a board game. Hey, are you are you a elder or near elder millennial? Do you miss the internet in the early 2000s when it was good and you could find things like Homestar Runner on the internet before Flash was unceremoniously killed? Uh, then you're probably going to like the Trogdor the Burninator, the board game. Uh, came out in 2019. Uh, it was published by the Brothers Chaps, the same lads who did the old Homestar Runner website. If you're not familiar with Homestar Runner, it was a very weird internet cartoon that had a lot of nostalgia for the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and one particular episode revolved around a dragon named Trogdor, and they wrote a song for it about how he goes around and burninates the countryside. And eventually they made their own little Flash video game to go with that meme, and they decided to turn that into a board game. And for the board game, you have a set of 25 tiles that represent the countryside. You've got various features like forests, caves, a lake, and then villages uh, where the peasants come out. And the players as a group are called the Keepers of Trogdor. Each player has their own character who has special abilities that affect how Trogdor the dragon uh, moves around the map. And there's a action deck. Each player, they take turns flipping cards off the action deck, which determines where Trogdor moves around the map, where the peasants move, and like how many peasants spawn each turn. And then you get a certain number of actions that you can do things like breathe fire, you can eat peasants, you can destroy a particular tile. And the players are successful when they've burned all the tiles, including the lake, which requires all the tiles around it to be burned. You've burned down all the all the villages and the thatched roof cottages, and you've burninated all the peasants. It has kind of the Candyland syndrome, where when you shuffle the deck, the movements have already been predetermined. So the outcome of the game is somewhat predetermined, but how each player uses their actions and their items will change that. And then the players obviously lose if Trogdor dies from either getting arrowed, getting sorted by the knights, or another character called Troghammer, uh, who will show up when you draw certain cards off the deck. I found it to be fairly, fairly fun. Your mileage may vary depending on how interested in Homestar Runner as a franchise your group is. I thought it was a great nostalgia trip. And a reasonably fun game. 
yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia to it. Um, the style of humor may only appeal to millennials. I don't know if Zoomers are going to look at it and be like, what the hell is this? I got my edition off of Kickstarter, so it had a lot of nice meeples and good wooden pieces. The retail version has uh, plastic versions on it, or plastic versions of the of the meeples. So not not quite as uh, nice of an edition, but you know, it's what you get. So if you're into Homestar Runner or have nostalgia for the early 2000s, uh, give Trogdor a try. Trogdor! It also includes, uh, as one of the player characters, the cheat, and his special power is it lets you cheat. So use that at your party's discretion. Always handy. And that's our show. As always, thanks for listening. You can like or subscribe or give us a thumbs up or a little heart icon or rate us on your platform. I don't know how they work. You know how they work. You're the ones listening to us. Engage in the parasocial relationship. And, you know, you can follow us on Twitter at Knoll Country or on Instagram at Knoll Country. Ed, do you got any plugs for today? You can follow me on Animadness or sorry, at Animadness on Instagram. Uh, my Lannisters have been making an appearance there. And then uh, instead of spending money on our useless non-existent products, give them to uh, some Ukrainian uh, charity funds, uh, some reproductive justice funds, because fuck the red states, and uh, your LGBTQIA plus funds, because we're next on that hit list. So, Praxis. Go out there and make people have a good time. Good times were had. Because go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>